0: Thank you to everyone who came out. Who who came out yesterday to the parade? Yeah, thank you everyone who came. Y'all had a fun time? Great time, right? Yeah. Um, So next year we're actually going to be having a float, so more people to come next year, hopefully. Um, It was a great opportunity for us to show that we as Douglas Boulevard Christian Church really do stand for the principle that we are an open and affirming congregation. We affirm the beauty of LGBT people and we're a racially racially reconciling organization, um, church as well. Um, If you're able, please stand for the reading of the Gospel of Matthew. We're reading Matthew chapter nine, verses nine through 13 and 35 through 38. And it says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. So he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the word of God may be seated. For the next few minutes and with the Spirit's help, I want to speak under the topic, A House for Sinners and Saints. Loving Lord, you have heard and received our humble praises. Now speak to us, your people, through your Holy Scripture. As we open your word, open our minds to understand your word, our eyes to behold your word, our ears to hear your word, our mouths to speak your word our hearts to love your word, and our hands to obey your word. May your name be glorified, your people be purified, and the world be edified through Jesus our Redeemer, we pray. Amen. Probably for most of us, the time periods in which we grew up hold a special place in our hearts. And whenever emblems of those eras come before us, we are instantly transported back to those times and places. And each period has its memorable aspects. The 60s had Motown and hippies. Best music ever, right? Yeah. The 70s had disco, bell-bottoms, and those hideous shirts with the oversized collars. The 80s had the swelling power ballads of the big, big hair rock bands that simultaneously made you feel like running a marathon and crying yourself to sleep with a tub of Ben & Jerry's. Well, for me, the late 90s and early 2000s hold a very special place in my heart. It was a time of my childhood, and everything just seemed to be colored in a certain kind of way. It has a certain kind of spectacular... Quality. Notwithstanding the overall feeling of nostalgia that I feel when I recount the period of my youth, it was not a time without cultural faux pas, shall we say, or missteps. It was, after all, the era of the low-rise bell bottoms, cargo pants with the overabundance of pockets, and the hyperfixation on boy bands and Britney Spears. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Terrible time. But once you get done cringing at all the cultural shortcomings of that time in American history, I remember the cool stuff, like Lost. Y'all remember that show? Which, ironically enough, I actually didn't watch until more recent times, so and my mom actually just started binging it last week, so great. <laughs> Side note, I actually binged that. It's just, so it's a six-season show, and it's 20 episodes per season. They're 45 minutes uh, a piece, and I did it in two and a half weeks at the beginning of seminary. Not a good choice, but it's what I did. Now this show really took the television world by storm as it was really the first kind of show of its kind. The premise of the show was simple. Oceanic Airlines Flight 815 has wrecked on the shore of some mysterious, uncharted island and the survivors are frantically trying to stay alive and escape the island, but with little to no success. They are lost, that's the name of the show. Now, lest you think Lost is sounding familiar and it's just the rehash of Gilligan's Island, recurring theme of people not being able to escape an island through a series of silly misadventures, just know that Lost is actually quite different. And here's some spoilers, spoiler alert, so cover your ears if you don't wanna hear it. There are eerie and unexplainable events that keep occurring that set the survivors' efforts back to escape. They hear scary disembodied voices whispering ominously in the jungle. They see the effects of an invisible monster rampaging through the jungle and stalking the stragglers. And they even run into a few polar bears, which obviously are not indigenous to the jungle and um, habitat. But what really had me on the edge of my seat the most was the others. The others were this enigmatic antagonist group of other people who inhabited the island and the survivors knew not how or why. Now, throughout the show, the survivors lived on the edge, lived on edge because of the possibility of an ambush, kidnapping, or murder by the others. At the beginning, however, the survivors did not know exactly who the others were or what they were about. They just assumed that anyone who was not with them when they had crashed were a threat. And perhaps the clearest instance in which this paradigm of relating with the others was a problem or proved itself to be problematic was when they realized that some of those who were the others, the bad others, were actually fellow survivors who had been flung to another part of the island. It took a few episodes, but our protagonists finally came to realize that these people that they had been afraid of were actually their own. Thus, the threat that they perceived in these supposed others was entirely imagined. And it took unfortunate losses for them to finally realize this mistake. Why am I talking about Lost? Besides the fact that it's one of the greatest shows ever, what I like about Lost is how it teases out. What I I like about the theme of the others in loss, rather, is how it teases out the theme of how we view and treat others whom we perceive to be different. It demonstrates very saliently the human tendency to group people in terms of us versus them. Us being those whom we have deemed worthy to be a part of our group, and those, the others, them being those who are, "Eh, we don't know what they're about, they're from the other side of town, they're from the other side of the tracks. We feel a sense of superiority when we are able to look at those people over there who are different from us in some way and say that they are unworthy of us. We're better than them, smarter than them, stronger, faster, better with our money. We have a better church. We're better than them. And they don't deserve to be a part of us. And this kind of othering that we saw in the show Lost is something similar to what Jesus is dealing in our passage today. Jesus has been traveling throughout the Judean hillside preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. The people have been astonished and amazed at this prophet who comes up on the scene preaching a message that contrasts with what they've been learning from the religious leaders for generations. The power of God attends his every word and action to the point that the sick are healed the imprisoned are let go, the demon-possessed are delivered, and even nature itself submits to his word. No one has ever seen the miracles Jesus has performed, nor have they heard the kind of words Jesus has spoken. Jesus was essentially setting himself up to be a proto-Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen. He was out to be top dog in the preaching world, as it were. Now, with all this fame and all the success that Jesus is having, you would imagine that, you know, with all this spiritual high he's having, he wouldn't want to sour that. He's literally fulfilling messianic prophecies that the prophets of old had foretold. Surely he would do everything in his power to stay on that high. I mean, wouldn't you? If you were having all the success in the world, even making your haters have to double think what they have to say about you, wouldn't you wanna protect that success at all costs? If the world were your oyster and you had everything to lose and everything to gain, wouldn't you want to protect your accomplishments, your status, your property, your power, your fame, your position, your influence at all costs? Apparently someone failed to clue Jesus into the importance of that. Someone forgot to tell Jesus about the who's who of who you should fraternize with and who you should not. Who are the holy people you should deal with and who are the ones you should stay away from? I mean, he's not only hanging out with a tax collector, but makes this tax collector one of his inner circle. Jesus is also hanging out with prostitutes and other people that would not, (laughs) probably wouldn't hang out with, but He he focuses in on the the tax collector. Now, something you should know about Jewish tax collectors, because maybe being a tax collector doesn't sound like such a big deal, but in those days, tax collectors were pretty much the worst of the worst. They were the scum under your shoes. So think about how you might feel about the IRS. The tax collectors of those times make the IRS look like Boy Scouts. They were sellouts, Uncle Tom's, the Benedict Arnold's of their day. These were individuals who were more concerned with getting on Rome's good list than on staying on God's good list. They were people who were willing to sell out their people in order to make a little more extra money, extorting money from their own people. And so the Jewish people didn't want to do anything with the tax collectors, nothing to do with them. And certainly for a, an up-and-coming preaching star, an itinerant preacher going around the day and Hillside, it was really controversial that Jesus should even speak with a tax collector, let alone say, follow me. So, either Jesus is completely unaware of this social convention on how to treat people like that, unlikely, or Jesus is intentionally disregarding the conventions of His day because he wants to call out the othering of people who are not like us. Notice how Jesus is unashamed to be identified who to be identified with those who are outcasts, even if they deserve it, even if they are a sellout. We see Jesus is proclaiming a gospel message of, "Hey. People have said that you don't deserve to come to this church, you don't have a place of belonging, you have a place of belonging with me. I know you have some scars from your past, you have a place with me. I know you have some secrets that you don't want people to know about, but you have a place with me. Jesus bids the outcast, the person that we say does not deserve our attention, he gives the divine attention. And how sad it is that we as people of God Think that it's too much for us to look at the person and say, you deserve to be with us. If the infinite and immortal God incarnates and comes among humans, none of us worthy, and says, follow me to each of us, who are we to say no to anybody? Now, before we get too pious and offended and say, but Paul, I would never do that. Let's just be honest. We would do that because we do do it. We do wanna protect our status, our positions, our power, our influence, our status. We do. We do it all the time. We do it when we see the homeless person on the street pushing their cart and without even knowing their circumstances, judge that that person must have done something in their past to be in that position. We do it when we hear people with a different accent or way of speaking and assume that they must be less intelligent than us. We do it when we judge the cultural practices and beliefs of other people to be ridiculous simply because they are not our own. We do it when we hear of the Breonna Taylors and George Floyds of the world and say, well, maybe they just shouldn't have struggled against the arrest. We do it when we click to the next news station when we see a Black Lives Matter protest going on, not wanting to face up to the realities of white privilege. We do it when we hear the Me Too stories of women who have survived abuse and rape and every other kind of evil from men and ask whether their skirts were too short. We do it when we we make a fuss about drag queens performing in front of children, but have absolutely no problem with scantily clad Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders doing the very same. We do it when we get upset that transgender and gender expansive people ask us to respect their names and pronouns, calling it majoring in minors. We do it all the time. And sure, sure, we may not do any, any of these things that are on this list right now. Pray to God you don't. If you do, come see me afterward. <laughs> we'll lay hands and pray on you. We may not do any of these things on this list, right? After all, we are a justice-pursuing church. We are a racially reconciling church. We are an open and affirming congregation. We do everything in our power to stand against these kinds of evils. We fall short, but we do our best. But if we're honest with ourselves, we could make a whole laundry list of other ways in which we uphold this us-versus-them distinction, couldn't we? It is the logic of this sinful world that we live in to want to protect ourselves from anything that could contaminate all the good things that have come to us. Anything that could ruin the security that we have in this social hierarchy. And this logic of the world is not just the code of the godless heathen out there. The same goes for the godless heathen often in the church. I'll tell you a story about myself. This is where I go with my notes. Who knows what I'm gonna say. The ADHD is gonna take over. When I was, when I was an undergrad, I had a, had a roommate. His name was Chris. He wouldn't mind me telling this story. Chris was painfully gay. <laughs> Chris was incredibly gay. And at that time, yes, okay, y'all can laugh, saints. Don't get pious. Chris was incredibly gay, and I was incredibly in the closet. I was so deep in that closet, it had a lock and the key was thrown Thrown away somewhere. You never find it. The fact that I was gay was one of the best kept secrets. Unless you just paid attention to the fact that I watched Golden Girls and was always referring to Golden Girls. Yeah, dead giveaway. If your son is quoting Golden Girls, he does not like girls. All right, say amen. I was deep in the closet. Chris was living out and proud. Chris was the kind of guy who wore, was it Mac Cosmetics? He wore Mac Cosmetics face beat. He wore these black pumps. He had this way, this very um, effeminate way of speaking. Because of the way I was raised to think about queer people, one of which I am, I was really uncomfortable around him. Another gay person living in my dorm room, and I'm gay, and I felt uncomfortable with him being in my room. Why? Because I was raised in a church culture that taught me that gay people, transgender people, lesbians, bisexuals, and all the other alphabet letters are problematic. Those are them. We are us. We're holy people. We're sanctified unto the Lord. We don't do that stuff over there. But I started to realize I'm a bigot. I'm bigoted against people who are like me, prejudiced against my own experience. My introduction, back to the notes, my introduction to Christianity had been so laden with putting people into boxes that I had alienated myself from my own experience as a gay person. And this really played itself itself out during the eight-month existential crisis I went through in 2017. I wasn't living my authentic self. And I wasn't allowing other queer people to live as their authentic selves. And I had to go through this winepress experience with God, where God had to press that prejudice out of my life. Prejudice not only against other queer people, but against myself. God had to start to unravel the, the net that I had been trapped in for so many years. And indeed, maybe many of us were. Through that experience, the Holy Ghost illuminated my mind to see just how wrong it is to bunch people, or even myself, into these artificial contrived categories of those people are sinful out there, we're holy, sanctified, saints in here. Lutheran pastor and uh, public theologian, as she stylized, um, Nadia Bolz Weber says this. I I love her. Y'all should look her up. I'm going to talk a little bit about her later. She says this in her book, um, Accidental Saints. When Jesus again and again says things like the, first shall, the, the last shall be first and the first shall be last and the poor are blessed and the richer curse, and that prostitutes make great dinner guests, it makes me wonder if our need for pure black and white categories is not true religion. But maybe it's actually Sin. Knowing which category to place hemlock in might be helpful for us so we can know whether something is safe to drink. But knowing the category to place ourselves and others in does not help us to know God in the way that the church so often tries to convince us it does. She established a church called A House for Sinners and Saints, and it's where I got the title for the sermon I notice how in the text for today, Jesus is in a house with people who are presumed to be saintly because of, their, because of their position and their power. And then there are these others who are identified as saints. Jesus entertains sinners and tax collectors. But notice how Jesus makes space in this same house for the people who are not only outcasts, but the people who think that it is right to keep the outcast as outcast. And I think that that's what Pastor Nadia is getting a hold of when she starts this church and when she writes this book. She's trying to help us to realize there are no right people for the church. The house of God is not meant for a certain people it's meant for all people. This right. story is a reminder, the story of the gospel for today is a reminder that we have a responsibility, Douglas Boulevard and his Christians, even if you don't belong here, we have a responsibility as Christians to let people out there, people in my community who don't know that Jesus loves them, to let them know, I know what the Westboro Baptist churches are saying and know what the SBCs are saying. We hear it, and we're gonna tell you something different. And we have to be loud and proud about that message. Because guess what? As the text said, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Pray that the Lord will send people out into the harvest to gather them in, and where are the laborers? Raise your hand up, you're one of them. The LGBT people out in this community, many of them don't even, they're, they're amazed when they find out, wait, your church actually loves gay people? They're like, yeah, they really do. Like they really do mean that thing. And they're like, there's no way. Oh, and I have my friends come visit. And they're like, oh, they really do mean that thing. The difference between having a church full of gay people, which is a blessing, by the way, the difference between having a church full of queer people and not, is just the difference between going and saying, we really do stand by these principles. We really do care about you. There is a God up there who is very different from the way people have portrayed that God to be. And we have a responsibility to go far and beyond, to use our energies to the best of our ability, to not only glorify God, but to bring people into the house of God, where we can truly make a house for sinners and saints. If the infinite God can incarnate and come and live among us, we ought to incarnate and live in our community. Until this and every house of God is a house for all sinners and saints, we have not done our job. And Christ is no longer here physically with us, but guess what? Christ is here with us by his Spirit. And that same Spirit that enabled him to to preach the kingdom of God in his ministry, he has bequeathed that to us, his people. And that same spirit that is present with him is present with us. And even though Jesus is not here to say, follow me to the gay person, to say, follow me to the lesbian, to say, follow me to the bisexual, we have the ability to say, follow me. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. Filled with God's Holy Spirit. Let us boldly go into the community and let the people of God out there know there's a house of God they can belong to in here. Amen. Amen.